0: At Plymouth Docks, on a June morning in 1848, a 13-year-old girl from Armagh is standing on the quayside. She's a rough child, thick-set, and dressed in coarse, ill-fitting clothes. A wooden box rests beside her on the ground, a box containing all she owns, a Bible, a prayer book, some clothing. The girl is waiting to board a ship to begin an epic four-month voyage with only the vaguest notions about her destination and her future, this 13-year-old has lied about her age in order to make a journey to the other side of the earth. We'll
1: rock you and roll you again by and by Walk
2: around me, bright boys, and roll down And we will roll down Walk around me, bright boys, and roll down
1: now the anchor's away and the sails are unfurled. Roll, roll, roll down! down we're bound for to tanker way round the world. Walk
2: around, we boys, and roll down. down and
0: if you had stood on Plymouth docks on that June day in 1848, would you have noticed this particular girl? It's most unlikely for she was just one of almost 200 Irish girls lined up in drab uniformity on that English quayside. 200 girls who reeked of poverty, 200 girls who looked at the world through eyes that were dull with deprivation, 200 prematurely aged and hardened teenage girls sharing a desire to escape. Just why they longed to escape, where they went and what they left behind, these are episodes in a bigger story, the story of the thousands upon thousands destined to become the lost children.
2: January
1: 1847, the Workhouse, Trim, County Meath. The children are in worse condition than many families who have chosen to
0: starve in their own homes. The lost children of County Meath, and in the south of the country, conditions were no better for the poorhouse children. February 1847, Cork Workhouse.
1: 150 boys occupy a ward 45 feet by 30 feet. Between them, they share 24 beds. The sewerage is most revolting, and so disgusting that I will not here enter upon it. Last week, sixty children, all under thirteen years
0: of age, died here. In Bantry Workhouse in the same year, living and dead children lay together in the same bed. Such an appalling,
1: awful and heart-sickening condition as it presented, I never witnessed
0: or could think possible to exist in a civilised or Christian community. And what about the lost children of the west of Ireland? Well, in autumn 1847, Clifton Union was bankrupt. The workhouse closed, the paupers were turned onto the streets. James Tuke, an English visitor, witnessed the destitution.
2: I cannot easily forget the countenance of one poor lad about 14 years of age, who, with a hollow, choking voice, begged of me a little meal to keep the life in him. The ghastly, livid face and emaciated form, wasted with hunger and sores of this breathing skeleton, told me that to him this world would soon pass away.
0: These were the workhouse children at the height of the famine, the orphans, the foundlings, the abandoned and the illegitimate, and their numbers were staggering. When the famine ended in 1849, there were upwards of 120,000 children in the poorhouses. Joseph Robbins, author of The Lost Children, puts that figure of 120,000 children in perspective.
3: When you consider that today we have about, I think, about 1,300 children in residential care and that they receive a great deal of attention and... uh, professional uh, help and uh, there are lots of people concerned about them you will realize what a problem they posed in the middle of the last century in Ireland many of the children of course were orphans Typhus was one of the main killing diseases of the famine and a characteristic of it was that it tended to kill the the adult rather than the child. So you had a position where the parents died and and the children uh, survived. Another large group of children within the workhouse were the deserted children. Now these children hadn't been deserted in any callous sort of way. Uh, The parents regarded it as uh, a temporary desertion. They went into the workhouse with the children, as they were obliged to do under the workhouse regulations because the whole family had to go in together. And then, during the night time, the parents climbed over the wall. They went to Cork or Dublin ports uh, and made their way to England, where they took an immigrant ship to New York or Montreal. And their intention was that having uh, got uh, a new home on the other side of the Atlantic and having uh, made a living for themselves, they would uh, take their children out from Ireland. But the tragedy was, of course, that many of these parents died in the coffin ships or in the immigration camps in New York and Montreal. And so their children were condemned to a childhood uh, in the workhouses.
0: At least one contemporary observer was moved by the sadness of families breaking up when parents emigrated stealthily and left their children in the workhouse.
4: The close whispering, lest the conversation should betray them, the sobs and tears of both when parting, showed them to be in a closer degree of relationship. Often this was their last meeting in this world, for the children then went out of life like bubbles bursting on the stream.
0: Children in need were crammed into the workhouses for the simple reason that there was nowhere else for them to go. The first workhouses in Ireland opened their doors in 1841, and they provided the only public charity for destitute persons of all ages. It was the children who suffered most in the organised chaos of the workhouse. Already we've had some pictures of that chaos. As for the organisation, well... There were rules and regulations covering every aspect of workhouse life, religion, work, education, clothes and food. And every action of the day was heralded by the ringing of a bell. Breakfast.
1: Three and a half ounces of oatmeal and a half pint of milk. Dinner. Two pounds of potatoes and a half pint of new milk. Supper,
0: six ounces of bread. That was the diet for workhouse children aged 9 to 14 years. Or rather, that was the diet recommended in 1842. As the decade wore on, as the famine worsened, the vast majority of workhouse children were denied even this meagre allowance. There were other fictions, too, about workhouse life.
2: Children are to have three hours instruction every day in reading, writing, arithmetic and the principles of the Christian religion.
0: Such was the ruling on education, but again the reality was a grim contrast. Teaching staff were often incompetent men and women of low character. Around this time in Ballyshannon, the schoolmistress couldn't subtract. The schoolmaster in Derry Workhouse believed that Greece was in the continent of Italy. In Clifton Union, the schoolmaster claimed that he could cure incurable diseases, and people like these faced enormous classes of dirty children in cold, damp and ill-ventilated sheds. At one stage in Cork Workhouse, two masters tried to control 511 boys. In these circumstances, the struggle for order took a higher priority than education.
2: Instruction shall be imparted to the children as shall fit them for service and train them to habits of usefulness, industry and virtue. No individual capable of exertion must ever be permitted to be idle in a workhouse. This applies to children as well as to adults.
0: Such was the letter of the law, but to actually provide employment and training for the workhouse child was no
3: simple matter. In fact, uh, the word workhouse was a misnomer because uh, very little work was carried on in it, at least very little productive work. One of the most uh, stringent rules of the poor law commissioners was that the workhouse should not enter into competition with independent producers outside, such as the small farmer or the tradesman or the shopkeeper, Uh, and that any work done there, any work done within the workhouse should not be productive. Of course, this posed a great challenge to the workhouse authorities. How were they going to keep a huge number of people occupied without involving them in productive labour of some sort. In general, the workhouse officials showed no imagination in
0: coping with this dilemma. Many workhouses adapted the hard labour regime of the prisons and stone-breaking was a, a regular occupation for adult paupers. As for women and children, they could be kept busy at the capstan wheel. This resembled a ship's capstan with long, radiating metal arms. Paupers trudged round in circles, pushing on the arms of the wheel. Sometimes it was connected to machinery for grinding corn. But more often, the device was used simply to exhaust the women and children.
3: One of the problems facing the authorities in the workhouse with the large number of women and children was that sometimes they fought with each other and sometimes they, they write it. So it was necessary to do something to, to stop that. And the capstan wheel was found to be a very suitable device for tiring them out so that several hundred children or women might be uh, forced to take the, the spokes of the capstan wheel and trudge round for hours and hours, and you could hardly find a more effective device for tiring out people who were likely to be troublesome when they were not tired.
0: The master of cork workhouse admitted that to see the machine in action gave him infinite pleasure. The medical officer in the same workhouse, Dr O'Connor, took a different view.
1: Of all classes, the poor children suffered most from this infernal machine. Nearly 100 of them being required to turn the wheel, they clung to the handles as close as clustering bees. Some pushed it, others only held on and were dragged round... And whilst the miller, being required to grind a certain quantity per hour, if the wheel did not move fast enough, came out and lashed the young slaves to his heart's content, without the possibility of his knowing who was the delinquent. Uh, to escape this dreadful punishment, many of them put acrid matter into the eyes, in order to produce
0: ophthalmia, and thereby get into the hospital. So, despite capstan's bell-ringing and books of regulations, disorder rather than discipline was the main feature of the overcrowded workhouses. And even before the worst effects of the famine set in, the large numbers of incompetent workhouse staff were adding to the chaos. In 1844, the poor law commissioner, Gulson made this report of Macroom Workhouse. The master and matron appear to be totally
5: unfit for their duties inefficient to the greatest degree, and excusing themselves for every irregularity. I found eight persons in the matron's bedroom, and the house seems to be converted into an hotel for the use of the master's friends. Master apes
0: the fine gentleman, and his wife the lady. Yet McCroom Workhouse was not the worst. Most of the supervisory staff of Carlo Poorhouse were sacked after an inquiry in 1849, and the report of the inquiry mentioned such details as
2: All night drunken parties. Proceedings of an improper nature.
0: Acts of immorality.
2: Staff members assaulting each other in front of the inmates. Various acts of impropriety.
0: In general, the records show that in the period 1843 to 1852, workhouse officials were dismissed in droves. Some 70 masters, 25 matrons and 80 teachers were sacked. Right from the start... The workhouse system was riddled with incompetence and abuse.
3: The poor law commissioners had directed that the work and general atmosphere of the workhouse should be as irksome as possible. In other words, that once a pauper entered a place, he should be goaded until he left the place. It wasn't, life was not to be made easy for him, even if it was a child or a woman or an old person, it, it, it didn't matter. And this, of course, influenced the type of staff selected. The commissioners had, for example, recommended that a suitable workhouse master would probably be found amongst the ranks of former policemen or or, or soldiers. Uh, They would understand discipline. In practice, the poor law guardians selected uh, anyone that had sufficient influence with them because patronage was uh, uh, operated on a very wide wide scale. So you had a position where farmers and shopkeepers and brewery owners and a a wide variety of people were given jobs in the workhouse. And to some of these people, the workhouse job was only a sideline. By modern standards, none of these people would be regarded as fit to look after the huge range of distressed people Who came to the workhouse looking for care.
0: The large number of unsuitable staff goes some way towards explaining the chaos in the Irish workhouses but at the heart of the problem lay the nature of the workhouse system. In essence the workhouses were a botched attempt by a reluctant government to tackle Irish poverty. Throughout the early 19th century there was a widespread misery in the country. The population was growing rapidly, the the potato crop was unreliable, there were frequent outbreaks of fever. Yet time and again, the government
3: refused to pass a Poor Relief Act. The main objection to a Poor Relief Act, of course, was that it would uh, need a lot of money, by, or by the standards of the Times, that it would need a lot of money to, to implement it. And this would, of course, lead to taxation. And the taxation would fall on the property owners and the views of the property owners were paramount at the time. They represented the ruling class, they were in a position to uh, insist that their views should prevail, Uh, and they insisted that uh, property should be protected from taxation. And at no time were they prepared to accept willingly that property had duties uh, as well as rights. By the
0: 1830s, Irish poverty could no longer be ignored. The paupers were overflowing the island. Emigration to the United States was one outlet, but many thousands of Irish paupers went no farther than England itself. In the summer of 1839, a horde of these Irishmen caught the attention of a young American sailor newly arrived in Liverpool. That sailor was Herman Melville, later to be famous as the author of Moby Dick.
5: One morning, going into the town, I heard a tramp as of a drove of buffaloes behind me, and turning around, beheld the entire middle of the street filled by a great crowd of these men who had just emerged from Brunswick dock gates, arrayed in long-tailed coats of hadden grey, corduroy knee-breeches, and shod with shoes that raised a mighty dust. Flourishing their Donnybrook shillelahs, they looked like an eruption of barbarians, ...they were marching straight out of the town into the country... ...and perhaps out of consideration for the finances of the corporation... ...took the middle of the street to save the sidewalks. "'Sing Lang O' Lee in the lakes of Killarney,' cried one fellow... ...tossing his stick into the air... ...as he danced in his brogans at the head of the rabble. And so they went, capering on, merry as pipers. When I thought of the multitudes of Irish... ...that annually land on the shores of the United States and Canada and to my surprise witnessed the additional multitudes embarking from Liverpool to New Holland. And when added to all this, I saw daily these hordes of labourers descending, thick as locusts upon the English cornfields. I could not help marvelling at the fertility of an island which, though a crop of potatoes may fail, never yet failed in bringing her annual crop of men into the world.
0: These Irish labourers marched into the countryside beyond Liverpool and became an English problem. When the harvest ended, there was no work for them, and they sought relief under the English poor law. Not surprisingly, English ratepayers objected to maintaining Irish paupers, and the government was finally pressurized to take action.
3: It established a commission under the chairmanship of Archbishop Whately, who was the Protestant Archbishop of Dublin, uh, and the commission also included the Catholic Archbishop of Dublin, and they were given the job of investing of investigating the causes uh, of Irish poverty and the nature of it. And during a period of six years, they carried out an intensive. Um, an an intensive investigation in in every parish in Ireland. After six years, this commission reported in 1836.
0: Its findings can be summarised in one word. Work was to be the answer to Irish poverty. The commission argued that Ireland would always be poor unless the people were given the opportunity to work. The government was asked to fund a number of schemes, land drainage, road building and agricultural training, to build up the Irish economy. A limited workhouse system should be provided for those people who were unemployed through no fault of their own. And how did the government react to these proposals? Quite simply, it took fright at the cost of these radical plans, and it sent George Nicholls, an English poor law commissioner, over to Ireland to make an alternative report. Six years of thorough investigation into Irish poverty were dismissed out of hand.
3: Nicholls spent six weeks travelling throughout Ireland and at the end of that time in a relatively short report he recommended what the British government were anxious to hear in any event and that was that the British poor law system should be applied to Ireland and that the expenditure on the proposed expenditure of the previous commission on the creation of work uh, should not be uh, followed through. Now, of course, the British workhouse system was intended for an entirely different situation. In Britain, there was always, around this time with the Industrial Revolution, there was uh, a fair amount of employment, and generally speaking, if a person hadn't worked, it was because uh, he didn't want to work. And the British system, British workhouse system, was intended to punish such an individual. It wasn't appropriate to the Irish situation where the typical Irish peasant who had no work uh, was out of work through no fault of his own. Nevertheless, the Nichols recommended the British system for Ireland and the government quickly uh, accepted his recommendation and in the Poor Relief Act of 1838 provided for the establishment of 130 workhouses throughout Ireland.
0: This new system of poor relief was particularly unsuited to cater for Ireland's destitute children. Yet the government insisted on these children going into the workhouses and rejected all arguments and pleas that the children be boarded out with families. The results of this disastrous policy came to a head with the famine. In the year 1849 and 1850, an English clergyman, the Reverend Sidney Osborne, visited Irish workhouses. His comments on the children are charged with shock at the total failure to provide for their care. After seeing Ballin a slow workhouse, Osborne wrote,
2: Till thus I witnessed it, I could not have believed how famine could show childhood with all the physical appearance of old age. The girls in
0: Limerick workhouse were skeletons covered in sores dressed in rags.
2: There was not the slightest evidence of even the least care being taken of them as they file before me two by two. They were a sight to fill any human heart with indignation.
0: In many workhouses, the dying children experienced no sympathy whatsoever.
2: I never saw one solitary instance of any one attempt to cheer these little ones in any one of the many ways we know children sick, and dying can be
0: cheered. Osborne made these remarks just nine years after the first workhouses opened their doors to cope with the social disaster of poverty. In those nine years, the workhouses had become part of that disaster. By early 1850, there were 120,000 children in the workhouses, and those children represented the depths of the catastrophe. If their numbers couldn't be reduced there would remain a long-term burden on the workhouse system. A desperate government invoked a classic remedy.
4: Dublin, September the 1st, 1848. Female emigration to Australia. This week, a rather novel scene was presented on our quays. Over 250 young girls from several poor law unions in Ireland were brought to town in order to have them shipped as emigrants to Australia. They were taken by the Shannon steamer to Plymouth, where a government vessel awaits their arrival. They were, for the most part, good-looking young girls, well-dressed. The guardians of the unions are now empowered by a recent amendment in the Poor Act to enable girls to proceed to the colony, and the government also assist in taking out the emigrants. It appears that wages are very good in Australia, but there is a great lack of hands, particularly female servants. No doubt it will be a happy release for many of these poor girls to be transplanted from the poorhouse prison to one of the finest climates in the world.
0: That was one of the very few contemporary reports of the Orphan Emigration Scheme.
2: All black despair do lie behind us And what awaits us no man may know Of those dark days not can
3: mind us New worlds are waiting, to which we go.
0: The orphan emigration scheme lasted for two years, and during that time, over 4,000 girls were shipped across the world to the Australian colonies. Not surprisingly, the guardians of the workhouses were enthusiastic about the scheme. They drew up lists of suitable orphans and equipped them for the first stage of the voyage of Plymouth.
4: The guardians of Omer Union have sent 19 orphan girls from the workhouse this week, provided with a suitable outfit as emigrants to Australia, the government providing them with a free passage from Plymouth, to which their expenses are defrayed by the Union. The girls, on leaving, presented an exceedingly clean and respectable appearance, being comfortably, neatly and rather picturesquely dressed in tartan cloaks and straw bonnets, reflecting much credit on the master and matron, Mr and Mrs Cloughful, who superintended the necessary preparations. Four orphan girls from the Gorchen workhouse were also sent at the same time, provided with a similar outfit. The girls will have the advantage of a fair start in life to push their fortunes in Australia. We could not help thinking on witnessing the comfortable provision made for them that Ireland is the only country in the world exhibiting the strange anomaly of the lot of the indigent idle pauper being made infinitely superior to that of the industrious labourer. It is not strange that under such circumstances demoralisation grows apace.
0: That newspaper article is a fair reflection of the attitudes to the emigration scheme. Decent, hard-working people had to pay for the privilege of emigrating, so it seemed unfair that workhouse girls should be given free passage. To the Irish peasant in 1848, Australia spelt wealth and opportunity
3: was in the month of January And Australia's coast drew near
0: And in that fair clime the sun did shine Which filled their hearts with cheer And soon in peaceful Sydney covert anchor they did ride And admired the green and pleasant shore Beyond the foaming tide But were the faraway fields greener was the emigrant's dream rooted in reality? Colum Kiernan, professor of Australian history at UCD and himself an emigrant to Australia in more recent times, believes that it was.
6: The most characteristic feature of the time would be the great contrast in wealth. Uh, whereas Ireland in 1848 was undergoing a famine pr- discipline, in Australia a lot of money was being made. Great fortunes were being made out of the wool industry and frequently the wool farmers brought their wool to Sydney for shipping. It was pure merino wool, which the machines of the Industrial Revolution in England fed off and made cardigans and jumpers from of a very high quality. So they got well paid for their wool, and then they would frequently spend it very quickly in and around Sydney. So there was always celebration and drinking and um, a search for women, because usually these were single men who had gone out as entrepreneurs to make a fortune. So although it was much richer than Ireland. It was also much rougher um, in general appearance. The shanties that were developed there in, in response to the rapid growth of the wood industry due to the Industrial Revolution in England were later pulled down but initially they would have given an appearance in great contrast to the wealth. It would have seemed that this, the city would have looked by comparison drab with the, with public houses everywhere and a tremendous amount of condemnation of this by the Christian churches, particularly the evangelical Protestant revivalists, people like John Dunmore Lang, who called Sydney a sink of prostitution um, and who really didn't like any more emigrants coming because it seemed to add to the problem. They they, con- they they wanted to rather try and harness the wood industry and keep it um, disciplined rather than letting these men run wild. But they lost, and the wool industry triumphed, and prosperity triumphed for everyone who was there in 1848. Very few of them ever went back to Europe again because they were doing so well, in in Sydney particularly.
0: And Sydney was the destination of the girls we encountered at the beginning of our story. They boarded the Earl Grey at Plymouth in June 1848 and were the first group to be sent out to this rough but thriving colony. According to some reports, they made a dramatic impression during the voyage.
5: Their violent and disorderly conduct on the voyage, their habits of pilfering, and their grossly profane and obscene language were such as to admit of no other conclusion that they had mixed with the lowest grade of society and that many of them had been common prostitutes.
0: That was the outrage verdict passed on 56 of those emigrant girls when they arrived in Sydney in October 1848. The colonists felt treated and fear that once again the British government was dumping the dregs of Irish society in the colonies. Workhouse girls were hardly better than shiploads of convicts, it was claimed. Nevertheless, the girls quickly found jobs, and the orphans who followed them to Australia in the next two years were also employed, mostly in domestic service. But resistance to the scheme grew in the colonies, resistance fuelled by sectarianism and racial prejudice.
6: The population of Australia at that time was roughly two-thirds Protestant and one-third Catholic. And this meant that the majority of Protestants always kept a close watch to ensure that there remained a majority and were always alarmed if large numbers of people came out of Ireland. But 1848 was a tricky year because that's when a lot of Irish people were coming out due to the famine in Ireland. So consequently, sectarianism was stronger under those conditions. Partially because of the Protestant belief at the time that Catholic families were larger and that therefore if you brought a lot of women out in particular that this could result in substantially changing the balance in favour of the Catholics, who they always had a sort of fear might eventually outnumber them. This fear, of course, has diminished tremendously since then until it has in fact vanished, and sectarianism is no problem in Australia now. But in the 19th century... About 1848, there was a Protestant evangelical revival going on in England, and some of these people went out to Australia and brought, in, so to speak, in their invisible luggage, along with their suitcase. They brought sectarian prejudices with them then. So in the historical context, it was a very real problem, and would have been experienced quite keenly by anyone who came out of Ireland at that time. Not so much uh, personal dislike as simply numerical or demographic dislike, a fear that they would be swamped in the long run. But that, of course, now is something only for historians, but at the time it was real enough. By early 1850, protests
0: about the orphan emigration scheme were at a height. In Australia, there were reports of the girls' shocking behaviour on arrival. It was claimed that many girls turned to prostitution, that the Irish orphan depot in Adelaide had become a brothel. In the House of Lords, the Irish peer man Cashel led a campaign of protest about conditions for the girls during the voyages to Australia. Finally, the government gave in to all the petitions and resolutions against the emigration scheme. The last orphan ship sailed in April 1850, and the workhouse doors closed on 104,000 children
3: the workhouse became the centre where you had concentrated all the outcasts uh, of society, the inadequate and the unwanted, the criminal, the unmarried mother, the abandoned and the illegitimate child. In time, it became probably the most despised feature uh, of Irish life. The very name workhouse, or poorhouse as it was frequently called, uh, was or became synonymous with misery and uh, and degradation. And it was to remain so until the abolition of the poor law system after the British government uh, withdrew from Ireland in the 1920s.
0: Most children who survived the famine and grew up in the workhouses of the 1850s knew only squalor, disease and overcrowding. They were beaten down and brutalised by the innate cruelty of their surroundings. How they looked and how they behaved set them apart from the rest of society.
1: All have the same guttural voice, the same unvarying expression in their countenance, and a strange similarity of
0: features. Most of these children spent a short life between the workhouse, the hospital and the jail. Nowadays it's hard for us to believe the ease with which the workhouse child of the mid-19th century found his way into jail. But just consider three boys from Monaghan and the punishments they received in the Year of Grace, 1855. Samuel Rush, 12 years
5: old, 14 days imprisonment and a whipping. William McCullough, 14 years old, one month's imprisonment and a whipping. Peter Clarkin, 10 years old, 14 days jail and a whipping.
0: These three criminals had committed the outrageous offence of absconding, from the workhouse school but even less initiative could put a workhouse child into prison a boy who broke a window or jumped on a school desk could just as easily be sent to jail and once in jail the children would rub shoulders with adult criminals when they'd served their terms and returned to the workhouses their influence on other children made it even more difficult to maintain discipline riots were frequent in the workhouses around this time and dr o'connor of cork workhouse described how the riots developed.
1: The excitement spreading from one to another, as if by contagion, became, after a little time, fearful to witness. They broke windows and doors, smashed forms and tables, beat the ward masters and ward mistresses, and the masters became their way. They screamed and yelled like maniacs, and some fell into hysterical convulsions, thus adding to the confusion.
0: In many cases, the children's violence was simply a reaction to the cruelty of individual staff members. The schoolmaster in Waterford used to strip young boys who wet their beds and publicly douse them under a pump. In Cork Union, the problem was dealt with by two male paupers. These steady men were given free rein to break the boys of their disgusting habit. Incidents like these highlight the lack of understanding in the workhouse system for children and their needs. But it's important to remember that at this stage in our social history, an informed and sensitive approach to children was exceptional.
3: There were no professionals involved in in the care of children. Indeed, one has to bear in mind that even the trained nurse to look after anyone didn't exist until the 1860s, until after Florence Nightingale's reforms. So you, the times were harsh, and you have to look at it against the background, uh, uh, that sort of background.
0: Eventually, from about 1860, the background did begin to change. Social attitudes towards children became more compassionate, and some of the clearest signs of change are found in literature, such as in the work of Dickens. In Ireland, various reformers pressed the government to board out workhouse children with suitable families. Boarding out, they argued, would give the children a chance to live some kind of normal childhood, a chance which was denied to the earlier generations of famine orphans.
3: Children of two and three and four years of age uh, were, were common, and these children had gone in after their parents died. And because there was nothing for them outside the workhouse and no one to look after them, they grew up within the workhouse. They never knew any natural uh, family life and uh, they knew of no existence apart from the type of existence that went on within the workhouse walls. So you could say their whole lives had been unnatural and this was reflected subsequently in, in the way they behaved because they never... Burged into outside society after they were discharged.
0: The first success was achieved in 1862 when the Poor Law was amended and children under five years of age could be placed with families. It was to take another 36 years of lobbying and argument before the government allowed children up to 15 years old to board out. You might well ask why this reluctance to free children from the workhouse? While it's true that a number of foster families did treat children badly, the poor law commissioners in 1871 still clung to the belief that the workhouse actually treated the children well. Against their confidence, we can set this picture of a typical workhouse seen in 1879.
4: The uninviting regiment of streelish women in scanty bedgowns and short petticoats and of poor heavy-faced men in baggy corduroys and tailless jackets and of listless children, in check and cord, all unpicturesque enough in their hideous monotony of garb and demeanour.
0: Gradually, boarding out became more acceptable, and it helped to reduce the numbers of workhouse children. At the same time, standards of childcare were improving. Since 1868, destitute children were trained in industrial schools, largely under the management of religious orders. Voluntary organisations played a greater role in childcare, and young offenders were sent to juvenile reformatories rather than adult jails. By 1900, the era of the workhouse child was drawing to a close. What survived in popular memory was a dread of the workhouse system, a system which branded hundreds of thousands of inmates and none more
3: than the children. There was this child named Mary Murphy... Her parents had left her in Cork Workhouse uh, when they were emigrating towards the last years of the famine. Um, And about 1851 they wrote home from America asking uh, that the child be sent out to them. And the workhouse master had a look for the child uh, but later reported to the poor law guardians that he was unable, unable to find her. He said that there were scores of small children... Orphans of the famine who were named Murphy, and that many of them couldn't remember who the parents were. And indeed, obviously, the records of the workhouse itself uh, weren't good. I think that the story of Mary Murphy reflects the plight of many Irish children of the period. She was, in fact, as I see it, uh, one of the lost children.
2: Do
4: not forget love, do not grieve The heart is true and can deceive My heart and hand I'll give to thee so farewell my